Well, 2 Timothy, if you're new here with us, is a letter from uh, the Apostle Paul to uh, Timothy, his, his disciple, his protege. And uh, so far in the letter, uh, we've seen uh, Paul talk a lot about sort of the what it means to be a faithful minister, what it means to, to be active in the ministry of Jesus, uh, what it means for Timothy specifically to, to now carry on the mantle of ministry that Paul had. Paul is probably going to die soon. He's in prison. And he wants for Timothy to be able to lead the church in the ways of God. And that has everything to do with discipleship. Uh, we've already talked pretty much every week already about the nature of discipleship, which means to help someone follow Jesus, what it means for us to follow Jesus, and then to share that faith with others. And we're going to continue to do that today because his, his point continues into our text. Uh, the aspect of discipleship, though, that we're going to talk about today is the, uh, the challenge of it, you might say. The, the hesitancy we have as people of God, if you're a Christian, the hesitancy we have to actually uh, connect with others to the point of, of sharing the gospel and discipling them in the ways of God. We are a sent people as Christians, and yet we are also kind of a reluctant people. And you can see this in the, the history of the early church. So the sort of, uh, the, the great commission, as we call it, the words from Jesus uh, before he went back up to heaven, uh, that made it very clear to his disciples, he's leaving behind, look, you have a mission, are, are these. Here are the words, Matthew uh, 28, 19, and 20, where he says, go and make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So it's pretty clear. If you were there on that day when Jesus said those words, you would have the clear understanding, okay, I'm going to have to pass on whatever I've received from Jesus to other people. And the fact that Jesus said, go to all the nations, also is pretty clear, we probably can't just stay here in Jerusalem, probably, right? Like, we're going to have to go to these places. And yet, what you see in the immediate kind of events that follow through the book of Acts is that the church does not pick up and move right away. In fact, uh, they begin to get kind of comfortable so here's just a little, you kind of see it by implication in Acts 6, uh, verse 7, describing the church, lots of good things going on, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All of that's good stuff. Jewish priests coming to see that Jesus is the Messiah, coming to faith, that's amazing. Right? More people becoming Christians, that's, that's fantastic. If you read other places, you see they had a great community of faith, they were selling stuff to give money to others. They were sharing everything they had. It was wonderful. But you don't see immediately as them leaving Jerusalem and going somewhere else because it got kind of comfortable pretty quick, right? The Holy Spirit fell. They were experiencing power. It was, it was fantastic. It took uh, a couple of things, though, to actually get them to go, <laughs> do the thing that Jesus said, go, go to all the nations. What It took persecution Right? When the emperor began to get displeased with the Christian church, persecuted them, especially in Jerusalem, then they began to scatter. And then it took the sort of word from the Lord to Paul, right? To, you need to go, and the missionary journey started. But my point is, this is kind of the, the pattern of God's people. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, you see it today. We've received amazing truths, life-changing, powerful truths from God, and we know that we're supposed to go and share it with others, but we don't always go that quickly. There's, there's a sense of reluctance 
And that's because, uh, you know, it's easier to not go. It's easier to stay. It's easier to stay quiet, and, and it's harder to, to speak up. And so Paul recognizes this. He knows this is already there, kind of in the, in the hearts of the church. And so he says to Timothy, we're going to see today, look, I'm going to encourage you, right, that you've been given something, you need to pass it on to others, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, uh, but it's going to be worth it. So let's look at our text, uh, verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2. Uh, I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll pull it apart. Paul says to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, three points to kind of just pull this apart. And the first one is, is this. What are we called to as Christians? We are called to make disciples who make disciples. Make followers of Jesus who then are able to go and help other people know Jesus and follow him. That's what we see very clearly in, in the text. Look at verse 2 again. He says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. And so the, the clear picture you get in Paul's mind is that the church is going to be uh, like a, a link uh, with, with truth passed from, or sorry, a chain, with truth passed from link to link all down through the generations. And if you were to map it out just from what he said, it would look like this, right? First generation, generation number one is Paul, right? Paul received the, the good news from Christ himself. He passed that on to Timothy. Timothy is, is called to pass that on to faithful men. And he's mentioning men specifically because he's speaking of elders and pastors going to be teaching. But the word is anthropos. And so it, it applies to both men and women in the church. And what is our job then to pass it on to others and then the idea is on to others and others all the way down through the generations, which is, which is actually what happened. If, if you look at the beginning of Acts, the church uh, was about 120 people. That's the number they give. Jesus left. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. There's 120 of them in the upper room. There's not very many people. And then the Spirit falls, and then this discipleship happens. Generation to generation there's like 80 some odd generations between then and now, went from 120 to this day, there's about two point something billion people who follow Christ. How? Not, not through some marketing strategy, not through some worldwide, you know, uh, broadcast. It's just, it's through people, disciples, receiving the gospel and then, and then passing it on, but not just, not just in a superficial way, not just in a... You know, I've, I've shared my faith with some people and they're thinking about it, but actually to the point that we help others know Christ. There's like music in our hearts and we then share it with others and they go on. That's, it's supposed to sort of uh, be an exponential growth is the, is the idea. So what we should see clearly is that this isn't a, a secondary or optional thing. This is actually close to the heart of what it means to be a disciple. In fact, you could take Paul's words here and by implication say, if there is someone in the church who had received the gospel but wasn't interested 
in helping others to know, then you would, you would have questions about that, wouldn't you? You would say, that doesn't seem like Paul is, is saying this is what it means to be a Christian. And so if that's not in your heart, there's, there's some conversations that need to be had there because there'll be lots of reasons, there could be, about why we would be reluctant. Last week, we saw that uh, it's very possible as a Christian to actually be ashamed of the gospel, right? To not, to not be excited about telling others. And, and Paul says, don't be ashamed. Don't look at the gospel through the lens of the world. Look at for what it truly is, the hope of humanity. You should be forthright and bold and excited about it. But here in our text, we're gonna see there's some other reasons. Like, for example, just the fact that it's actually really hard to, to share the gospel and, and that we can become weary, we can become overwhelmed. And so Paul doesn't sugarcoat it, right? He doesn't say to Timothy, look, go and, go and make disciples. It's going to be great. Every time you share your faith, someone's going to love it. They're going to be like, thank you. I've been waiting all my life for this. And it's just going to be celebration after celebration. He doesn't say that at all. He says it's, it's going to be hard work. And so our second point is, is this. As, as disciples who are making disciples, we should expect hard work and we should expect suffering. And to help us understand that, he gives us three uh, metaphors, three pictures of the kind of hard work and suffering that we should expect. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. So let's take a look at each one, because there's different kind of truths that come out in, in the way that Paul describes these, these different uh, kinds of people. So verses three and four, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So the focus here that Paul has for the soldier is, is a single-minded devotion to obey the commanding officer and a willingness to put yourself in harm's way to achieve the goal. And, and really what Paul is bringing about it to our minds is, is this picture of the, the noble soldier, the one who is fighting the good cause, fighting against the evil in the world, fighting to, to liberate the captives, fighting to push back against tyranny. And, and probably for most of us, the, the thing that would come to mind would be the soldiers of World War II, right? Those pushing back against the evil of Nazism and Hitler himself and n not having uh, any personal experience with armed conflict. In my mind, what comes to my mind are some of the movies uh, that have been made of that conflict, right? The, the one that is top is probably uh, Saving Private Ryan, right? Spielberg, I remember seeing in the theater, seeing, seeing the, just the epic scenes on the beaches of Normandy and seeing the allied soldiers landing on the beaches and seeing these, these young men when the doors open and just gunfire, just, just killing people by the hundreds just immediately and yet no one is turning back. Everyone is jumping over the sides of the boat and storming the beach. And even though their friends are being taken out around them, they keep, they keep pushing on and they get to the edge of the cliff and they look up at the, the gun positions. They think we need to take those cliffs. No one there is thinking, I, I got to go back. No one is thinking about the obligations they have back home. No one is, has their minds entangled with civilian pursuits. Because if they did, you wouldn't keep moving. You wouldn't keep going forward. Having a clear objective. The commanding officer, in their wisdom, said, this is how we're going to take back Europe. Drives the army forward. And the soldier is focused on pleasing the commanding officer because he trusts that the goal is good. And Paul is saying, this, this is the mindset that we should have as disciple makers. Why? Because even though we don't always think of it, as Christians, we are not actually at peace. Like our country is at peace, and we're thankful for that. But the Christian church is, is actually involved in a conflict. Has been 
since, since Genesis 3, right? That there is now an evil, oppressive, destructive force in the world, Satan himself, our own, the sin in our own hearts, and is bringing about the death of humanity. And yet Jesus has come into the world as the light, right? To push back against the darkness. And his strategy to actually bring this light to the world is us. And so we're involved in a conflict. When, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, what he really means is step onto the battlefield. Put yourself in harm's way for the sake of the people who are dying. And the harm here is, it, there's lots of different, I mean, for some areas of the world, it's actual physical harm. For us, it, it may be the, the, the risk of, of reprisals at work because we're too open about our faith. It, it may be uh, the risk of, of being called out because we stand up for certain beliefs that we have or just actually sharing the gospel and the relational risk. It, there's lots of different harms that can come for us. And lots of reasons why we would play it safe. And so in light of this example, I think it's good for us to, to think of the specifics. What, what is... What is Timothy being warned about? He's, he's being warned about the civilian pursuits that can distract us. And so I think it's good if you're a Christian here to think, what, what are the things that I'm distracted by, that my heart is entangled with, that, that make me reluctant to step into a threatening, unfamiliar situation? Uh, when I know that if I go there, I, I might have the opportunity to share my faith. I might have the opportunity to, in some way to have some impact for the gospel, but I, I'm worried about the things that I have my, my hold on in this world, and I don't know if I want to risk them. Paul's saying that's, that's not the mindset of a disciple maker. That's not the mindset of a faithful Christian. We need to be ones who are willing to suffer, who, who have the clear commands of, of our commanding officer in mind so that we will go out, so that we will speak up, so we will be willing to share our faith in a compelling way. So first is the soldier. Secondly is the athlete. And here the focus, interestingly, because there's lots of, you'd think, connections with athlete, right? Endurance, self-discipline. But here what Paul focuses on is, is rules. Look at verse five. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And back then, in the Olympic Games, there were some specific rules. You had to complete a 10-month training program. I don't know what it was back then. Lifting rocks or running, I don't know what it was. They didn't have, like, barbells. And so you had to do it, though. And then you had to testify, uh, a witness, yes, I did this for 10 months. Then you were allowed to compete. Those are the rules. You couldn't compete if you didn't follow the rules. We have the same thing today. We have many more rules today, right? The modern Olympics... Uh, a lot of rules about who can and can't compete. Uh, a lot of them to do with performance-enhancing drugs, right? If you're taking some of these drugs, you can't compete. Uh, when I was in grade five, Ben Johnson was on everyone's lips, right? Fastest man in the world, 100-meter gold medalist for Canada. We all just were like so amazed and then so crushed when it came out that he had used performance-enhancing drugs. And what happened in this uh, verse, it happened. They took away his crown. They took away his gold medal. He didn't follow the rules. What Paul is saying is that there are rules in athletic competition and there are rules for gospel ministry. And we know the rules because of the exhortations that Paul has for Timothy and actually all through the, his letters. Right, what does he say? Guard your doctrine and guard your life. Right, you, you can't disciple others effectively. Like You can't help other people know Jesus if you don't know the right things about Jesus. 
So he says to Timothy, make sure all the false teachers in the church, you gotta confront them. You gotta get them out of there. No one's gonna come to genuine faith if they're teaching these false things about God. It's not gonna work. You have to know what is true. You have to know the Bible. But the other thing he always says is, is guard your life. Because also, no one is gonna come to saving faith if you're telling them the gospel, but then you're living for the world. It, it undermines everything that you've been trying to achieve. We saw that in the first... Uh, the first section where Paul said, I have a clear conscience. I'm a man of integrity. And that's why his discipleship sticks. Because people, they don't lose heart. They don't lose hope when they find out something about Paul that actually he was a total hypocrite. Which is what happens sadly over and over again in the leadership of the Christian church. And it just makes all the discipleship that's being built, just it, it undermines it, it falls apart. It's such a struggle for people who've been discipled by someone who then they have a moral failing or whatever it may be and then they, they have to try to disentangle the, the true gospel with whatever this person was living, so much harder. So a good question for us in, in light of this, this idea of an athlete is, are there rules? Uh, are, there, are there commands of God that, that we're breaking? Maybe blatantly, Maybe we just, it's in a dark place. Even now, as I say it, you're like, I don't, I don't even want to think, ask that question. Or maybe it's just we're step, you know, putting our toe over the line, right? Kind of leaning into some sense of habitual sin or, or, or something like that. Just to be clear, so we're clear, this isn't saying that by keeping the rules, you will earn anything with God, right? This, is, this isn't the gospel. What it's saying is that if you have been changed by the gospel, then you will seek to follow the rules, out of a heart that has changed, so that people will look at your life and be like, oh, it actually makes a difference. Right? This gospel actually makes people more loving and, and more holy and, and more moral, and that, that all goes together. Saying so you're not going to help people to know Christ if you yourself have your back turned to him. So an athlete, a, a picture of, of a willingness to, to suffer and the hard work that comes involved with disciplining ourselves and, and walking faithfully. The third image, though, is that of a farmer. A farmer, a hardworking farmer. Verse six. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, I have to admit, I don't have a lot of experience uh, with farming per se, but I do think I know what's involved uh, because I have watched all 28 seasons of Little House on the Prairie, faithfully. <laughs> and um, uh, early on in our marriage, I bought Don the DVD box set, which, if you haven't seen it, is in the... It's in the shape of a covered wagon. It's fantastic. So we had it on our shelf. So we've watched all of it. So what from that, which I think is like a master class in farming, I've, I've learned this. It is hard work. Usually that hard work is done with your shirt off and your suspenders, right? Paw glistening in the sun. That's usually how it's done. Uh, so it's very hard work, uh, tilling the soil, you know, planting the seeds. But the other thing I've learned about farming is that it is uh, fraught with the possibility of disappointment. Because there's episodes where there's uh, hail storms, right? That's not good, uh, I learned. And also there's drought, of course, and there's just the crops failing, and it's incredibly disappointing and crushing. And all of this uh, has a comparison to disciple, discipleship, to ministry. This is hard work. In fact, we see in other places, Paul talks about how, you know, the idea of planting the seed, right? The word of God being planted. Uh, we've all talked about planting churches, and then Paul also says, you know, there's other ministers who water, right? He talks about himself and Apollos watering, meaning helping those who are just new to the faith, growing in faith. How? Through teaching, 
through, um, you know, counsel, through leading to know Christ more. That's the watering and, and they're growing. And then there's a harvest where people, you know, have a genuine strong faith and they're able to go out and to, to tell others. There's this, this agricultural metaphor that really kind of plays out. And the other thing that plays out is the, the possibility of disappointment, which makes discipleship all the much harder because when we invest so much in people and then it doesn't work out, it's, it's, it's demoralizing, isn't it? If you've been through that. I was talking with a friend of mine who's in ministry and he was just, I was asking how it's going and he was talking, he just told me a story of his wife who had been discipling this woman in their church for like uh, years. She, she was someone who came from a bit of a rougher background, had been in addiction, had got clean, started coming to church, came to saving faith, was growing in her faith. Uh, his wife was meeting with her, you know, weekly for a period of time, just really helping her to grow. And there was such joy in that. To see someone who's in a self-destructive pattern, hopelessness, and then, and then come to faith and actually life growing, going well. And, and then he said recently, this, this woman sadly had a relapse and just turned away and it and all fell apart. And it was, their hearts were heavy for the woman herself, but also just the, the disappointments and, and the frustration and, and the, the sense that I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to invest so much in people if they're going to disappoint me. And that's part of the hard work of discipleship, of recognizing that we, we are opening our hearts, being vulnerable with people, pouring ourselves into, into people. And there's many times where it, it doesn't work out. And, and we're tempted then to just, to just not do it next time. And yet, yet Paul is saying it's the hardworking farmer who what? Who shares in the crop, right? The first one to share in the crop. And, and there's, a, there's an implicit encouragement there that, that there's joy in seeing things through to the end. And that when God is at work, there is a genuine fruitfulness that can come from gospel ministry. In fact, all of these metaphors... Uh, there was one guy I was reading, C.K. Barrett, who, who has these great lines. He says, in, in this text, beyond warfare is victory. Uh, beyond the athlete's effort is the prize. And beyond agricultural labor is the crop. And so it's Paul acknowledging, like saying to Timothy, yes, look, you have to prepare yourself. There's going to be hard work. There's going to be suffering. But there is a goal in mind that is worth it. Right? It's worth it for the farmer to have one year where things go horribly wrong, but the next year plant, and then there's a bounty. It's, it's worth it. It's worth it for the athlete to, to work hard and follow the rules and receive the prize. It's worth it for the soldier to put himself in harm's way so that the victory might come. And it's worth it for us in gospel ministry. But, but I feel like we need to think about this a little bit more because I'm not sure that we are always convinced that it's worth it. I think sometimes... Um, for whatever reason, just because of, of the, the things that are going on in life or, or maybe the things that we are getting distracted by, we forget how worth it it is. And so I want to give an illustration just to kind of impress upon us that the connection, the needed connection between hard work and sacrifice and then the reward, the, 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 the prize. And I'm a little nervous about this illustration, okay? I'll, I'll be honest with you because um, it involves, uh, well, I'm just going to say it, it involves vaccination, okay? So are we able to do this? Is that okay if I use this example? Okay, all right. Just, this is, this is vaccination happened years ago, okay? This is smallpox we're talking about. 
And smallpox vaccination was an incredibly effective tool. In fact, the story is a compelling one. Because smallpox itself is a disease that existed, they think, like they find evidence of it in the, the tombs, the, these things that look like smallpox, way thousands and thousands of years ago. And it was one of these diseases that was just always kind of around. And, and it, was, um, it would flare up and, and it would be incredibly uh, devastating. Uh, it would, your face, your whole body would be covered with these, these pustules. It, it would, it would um, cause scarring, disfigurement. It would cause blindness as it got into the eyes and it would cause death. And it would flare up, and there would be this epidemic, and then it would kind of settle out again over and over and over again. And in the 1700s or so, what they began to do, someone had the idea, well, let's take some of these pustules, dry it out, and then, and then we'll breathe it in. And it provided some uh, protection. I think, it was, I think it's inoculation. Is that inoculation? Whatever it is, it did it. And then eventually, by the 1800s, someone developed a, a vaccine where they could in inject people with this help and it would actually protect them. And so through the 1800s in Northern Europe where it began this, this process of vaccination, uh, the whole country would, would begin to be saved, right? And they would, they would be helped and they would pass it on to others and, and all through the 19, uh, 1800s and then early 1900s in the Northern Hemisphere, the countries began to eradicate smallpox where it was no longer a plague on their people. So around 1950, the, the World Health Organization, chill out, it's okay, I'm just telling you what happened, okay? They, they said, look, we're go we have the tools uh, at the ready. We can actually eradicate smallpox from the face of the earth. And so they put a team together. It was a lot of countries involved, and they sent teams to all different countries, developed countries, all the way down to the less developed countries, year by year, teams to identify, trace where the, you know, uh, the, the, the disease was from. They vaccinated and people were protected and it came all the way to the 1970s. Somalia, Ethiopia were the last two countries, very difficult countries to kind of get into, to explain. They had all ad campaigns explaining why they were doing this, what it was about, but just geographically it was difficult. They had to have teams and Jeeps and Humvees trying to get to these remote areas, track everyone down. It took years to try to get this done until finally, in 1977, they found the last guy with smallpox. And they vaccinated him, everyone around him. And by the 1980s, here is what the World Health Organization was able to say. In 1980, they made this declaration, and here's a picture of smallpox, just so you know what we're dealing with. They said, the WHO declares solemnly that the world and its peoples have won freedom from smallpox, which was a most devastating disease, sweeping in epidemic form through many countries since earliest time, leaving death, blindness, and disfigurement in its wake, and which only a decade ago was rampant in Africa, Asia, and South America. And everyone hearing that would say, that's amazing. Right, if they're Christian, praise God that now this disease that would do this to little kids was no longer a threat. And, and the work involved was extensive. Tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of hours. $300 million, they think, was the total cost for this to happen. But was it worth it? Absolutely. Why? Because they had an antidote. They had a way to protect people physically from harm. And they did it. And you get where I'm going with this. If, if this is good news for the people of the world, how much better is it if there is not physical healing in the offering, but spiritual healing? And, and are we not the people who have the antidote? We know the way that people can be freed from the plague of death and suffering and lostness and misery. It's Christ. He's been given to us, entrusted to us. And all that is required of us is what? That we do the hard work. We put ourselves in harm's way. 
We are willing to suffer so that people around us might hear the gospel and then it's in God's hands. God's hands to save. He's the one who saves. But we can know that we've been faithful and we can have the joy, the prize, the victory of being part of it, of of seeing people genuine, their lives transformed through the, the hope that comes through Christ. This is the calling on our lives. The challenge, of course, is that we see the prize, we see it's valuable, but that also we have the strength to do it. And and that is the challenge. For those of us who've been involved with with ministry, with discipleship, I don't don't mean like as a pastor or missionary necessarily, but just just a faithful Christian. We know it it gets weary. We get weary. We we get burdened down by our own struggles and challenges. And the idea of, of... you know, going over to our neighbor again and trying to follow up or, or trying to initiate that conversation, we get, we get exhausted. And Paul knows this. And so at the very beginning, he, he gives a, a needed insight for Timothy. And we're, we're doing the third, but it's in verse one. Our third point is this. We need to be strengthened by the grace of Christ. Verse one says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need to be strengthened. Why? Because we get weary. Because we get discouraged. Because we get frustrated. Because, because sometimes we're the problem a lot of the time. Right? It's not just that people aren't receiving it well. It's that, that we get caught up in our own sin. And then we get disappointed in ourselves and frustrated. Who am I to try to go and share this? I don't even fully get it myself. There's so many things competing with our, our, our attention and our focus and our energy. We need strength. We need the strength that comes from the grace of Christ. But here's the question I have about this this clear exhortation. It's not clear to me, on first glance, what does that actually mean? Like, to be strengthened in the grace of Christ strikes me as one of those things that Christians say that seems very encouraging and very spiritual, but I'm not always clear exactly what, what what does that mean? How does that practically help me to have a greater sense of, of strength? And so a couple things, I think, just in terms of sort of pulling this apart. Why didn't Paul say to Timothy, look, what you need is to be strengthened in the love of Christ or in the forgiveness of Christ or in the power of Christ or in the presence of Christ or the the promises of Christ. Those are things that are a little more tangible, right? To know the promise that Jesus says, I will always be with you, that, that, that encourages me. To know the promise that I will work everything out for your good, that that gives me strength. To know that I'm loved in spite of my failings, to know that I'm forgiven in spite of my sin, to know that I have power in spite of my weakness, all of those things are very tangible handholds that I find a little more easy to grasp. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, be strengthened in the grace of Christ. Why? Because all of those things we have in Christ, but we don't deserve any of them. You understand? Grace is undeserved kindness from God. Grace is the mercy of God for those who are sinful, for those who have turned our back on him. And is that not us, the church, that that we don't deserve any of those blessings and yet we have all of them in Christ by his grace. When we see that more clearly, we understand that yes, I need your grace. I need to be aware of the kindness and favor of God. Because then when I don't do things well, or when things don't work out the way I thought they would, I can receive, I understand, look, Lord, all of this is your kindness. 
all of this you're doing in spite of me. And my gratefulness grows and my sense of his presence grows and my sense of his love grows because I realize it's nothing to do with me. It's all him. And another way to think of it is to think of it like Paul does. You know that verse, 2 Corinthians, he's writing about his trials, his challenges, right? That he wishes God would just make his life easier. He's got this, this thorn of the flesh that plagues him over and over and over again. And then the wonderful, uh, famous line in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, but God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, understanding the grace of God requires our understanding of our weakness. We can't actually receive the strength, all the power, all the things that God has for us if we are still operating in our own strength, which we do all the time. I do all the time. It's, it's like my default heart is towards my own control of situations, my own ideas, my own sense of having things together. And as soon as I do that, my strength actually decreases. And I'm operating out of my own resources, which are very limited. But when I see my weakness, and when by God's grace, again, he brings me to the point of seeing my weakness, and usually that means I've, I've messed up royally. I've, I've hurt people in my life. Uh, things have failed. Or in some way God has afflicted me so that I just, I can't actually do the things in my own strength. And we feel like all is lost and it's the most darkest day. It actually is the moment where we, we disengage. We unplug from our strength and we plug into the Lord. And then we have a conduit of spiritual power that is unsurpassed. And it happens, why? Because we see that we're weak. And in our weakness, we see that he makes us strong. And in that power, we can go and do all the things he's calling us to, which includes loving people well, telling people things that we're so scared to tell them, putting ourselves in, in places where we have to rely fully on, on God's power and his sovereign hand. Paul mentions this first because it is the most important thing. I'm mentioning it last because I want us to sit in this. I want us to recognize that if, if we can see clearly what we've been called to and that we have the message of hope for humanity and that it's, it's far beyond us to do it, then the only hope is that we see how weak we really are and we appeal to Christ for his mercy and grace and strength to flow into us. It's, it's, a, it's a mysterious thing how God works. And so I like the way that, that Paul ends this little section, right? Verse seven, he says to Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And that's how I'd like to close our time. Just, just praying that, that that's what we'll do this week. That we'll be thinking over these things, remembering the grace of Christ, remembering what we're called to, remembering the peril that everyone around us is in, and acknowledging, God, I'm never going to be able to do this in my own strength. Help me. Help me just to get through this day, whatever it is. Maybe it's like a trial in our life where we're struggling to believe the promises of God. 
That's an aspect of our own discipleship, which, which when we walk in it, will be fruitful as we seek to share with others. So this applies to kind of every area of our life and is designed then to go outside of us to others. Let's pray that we would think of this and be encouraged by this this week. So let's close. Lord Jesus, I, I, do, I do pray for us, Lord, for what you've called us to is an impossible task. Lord, for us to remain faithful. Lord, for us to, to be self-disciplined, for us not to, to fall into sin over and over again, for us not to begin to rely on ourselves over and over again, for us to have the courage to, to share the gospel, first believing it ourselves and then, and then seeing the value as such that we actually step out into the world hostile to our faith and, and begin to share, begin to talk, begin to, to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. And, and to say things at times where we are so afraid to say it and to do things at times where it just seems, seems unwise from an earthly point of view, God, in all of these things, we need your help. We need your strength. We need to remember that we are recipients of your grace. That we don't deserve any of it. And yet you've given us everything. And Lord, may we be filled with that, that grace and, and all that comes with it, the strength and the, the promises and the power. And may we not just sit on it, but may we be open to what you're calling us to as followers of Christ who are called to make other disciples who will then go and share with others and that the world may be, may be healed, may be reached, not just for physical safety and salvation, but spiritually so. That will bring hope for this life and the life to come. God, may that be the burden of our hearts and the joy of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.